Hello, I'm Paul Leeworthy. Welcome to the Connecting Memories podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, I'm Paul Leeworthy and I'm joined today by sociologist Dr. Sarah Gensberger. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you, Paul, for having me. In these podcasts, I'm talking to leading academics about memory. Memory is a term that is much used at present, especially in academic research. It is invoked in many disciplines and across those contexts, it is used to mean very different things. As well as asking my guest speakers to share some of their latest research with us, I ask each of them, what does memory mean in the context of their work? Whose memory do they study and how? The format of each episode, as listeners to previous podcasts will be aware, consists of three parts. In the opening segment, I ask my guest speaker to say a little bit about how they approach memory, what the term means to them and in their work. In the second section, I ask them to give a shortish talk or micro lecture, presenting some of their latest research. And in the last part of the podcast, I ask a few questions about their talk. And with that, it's time to introduce today's guest speaker. Sarah Gensberger studied at the École Normale Supérieure and the Sciences Po University in Paris. Following the completion of her PhD, she served as visiting fellow at several institutions around the world and as postdoctoral fellow at Sciences Po. In 2010, she assumed the role of tenured researcher at the CNRS, the French National Centre for Scientific Research, as a researcher in social science. In 2018, she became Deputy Director of the Centre's Institute for the Social Sciences of Politics, and in 2019, she was awarded the CNRS Bronze Medal, a distinction for early career researchers. Sacha's work has also won a number of other awards, including, among others, the French Voices Award in 2017 for the Memory on My Doorstep project, and the Gold Decibel Award in 2016 for the Jean de Paris Jean de la Seine project. Dr. Gensberger has published widely with many book chapters and journal articles as well as numerous monographs. Focusing on those available in English, I'll mention her important article on Maurice Heidwachs, Heidwachs's Studies in Collective Memory, a founding work for contemporary memory studies, which appeared in the Journal of Classical Sociology in 2016. And her books, Nazi Labour Camps in Paris, co-written with Jean-Marc Dreyfus, and first published in 2011 with Berghahn Books. National Policy, Global Memory, The Commemoration of the Righteous Among the Nations from Jerusalem to Paris, published in 2016, also with Berghahn. And Memory on My Doorstep, Chronicles of the Bataclan Neighbourhood, published in 2019. To that, I will add the publication this year, 2020, of her latest book, Beyond Memory, Can We Really Learn from the Past?, which appeared with Palgrave, written in collaboration with Sandrine Lefranc and with translations into Arabic and Spanish already underway. This year will also see the publication of a special issue of the French journal Histoire Urbaine, or Urban History, on l'espace de la persécution des Juifs, Paris dans la Seconde Guerre Mondiale, the space of the persecution of Jews, Paris in World War II, co-edited by Dr. Gansberger and her colleagues Isabelle Bacouche, and Eric Leboy. Thanks so much for joining me on the Connecting Memories podcast, Sarah. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome you to the show. Thank you, Paul. I'm very happy to be here. So to get us started, I'd like to begin with the questions that I've been asking each speaker that I have on the show. Could you please tell us a bit about your research, Sarah, and how memory features in it, as well as about your approach to studying memory? Okay, thank you, Paul. So... Um... To make it short, I would say that I'll, I study in my work the evocation of memory, the public evocation of memory as memory. In a way, I started by investigating the social frameworks of memory, and step by step, I've been studying now memory as a social framework. So I, I, I'm going to explain shortly. Um, when I started as a young sociologist in France, um, memory was only a topic for historians. And one of my goals was to try to write a real empirical Advaxian work about memory. 
because as I wrote in the uh, article you mentioned in Journal of Classical Sociology, um, AVAX is always quoted but never really uh, read and used empirically. And what my first aim when I was still a PhD student was to develop this empirical case study of Alvaxian theory. So that's why I'm referring to when I say I first was interesting into the study of the social frameworks of memory. So my idea was try to understand how and why people do speak about the past, but as memory, as framing it as a form of memory and commemoration. So I'm not the one saying from outside, this is past being evoking. I really am paying attention about the way people, uh, individuals in society themselves frame it as a memory practices as Jeffrey Olick framed it in one of its classical articles. So this was really the starting point of my work and that was my PhD was about, the one which was uh, published at Bergen Books some years ago. And the idea was to understand how and why Jews from France who were saved during the war decide or not to use the Israeli commemorative title of writers among the nation to tell something about their past. Why, through which sociological process. So I, so I started working on memory as a pure sociologist and at some point I started to move from sociology to political science. Why is that? Because when I started looking into the process of remembrance through the title of writers among the nations, the French state was not involved at all in this process. And while I was researching, it became more and more involved. So I, I tried to make sense of this political involvement, but I didn't want to do it as an historian, which I was not, even if I was trained in social sciences, but as a sociologist. So I didn't want to, to, to study that only through the concept of uses of the past in terms of uh, instrumentalization um, of the narration of history. I wanted to, to study it in a more neutral and not normative way. So as any public policy issues, that's why I started to look at very classical public policy theory and work, working on public an analysis, public policies, administration and so on. So in doing that, I moved from the study of the social frameworks of memory to the study of memory as a social framework. And it is now what I have been doing these past years. What do I mean by this expression? I mean that I try to understand how memory became first a category of public intervention in France and mostly in um, West, Western Europe. And secondly, I'm very much interested in the way this public intervention and this category of memory has um, feedbacks. So how does it work? Why do memory has become a, a synonym of citizenship? At the beginning, the transmission of memory was supposed to promote an inclusive vision of citizenship and to build new citizen, more tolerant, more peaceful, etc. And now it's more and more a symbol of this inclusive citizenship. Because when you look, and it's the topic of my one of my last book, when you look precisely on the social impact of this public memory policies, you see that they do not really transmit values. They only confirm people in the values they have before this memory practices, memory transmission, and so on. Some studies show that if you are, for example, someone with conviction from the right-wing side of the um, political um, spectrum, you will not become more tolerant and less anti-Semitic or less racist because you are in presence of this past of uh, violence, of the Holocaust, of slavery. On the opposite, it will kind of reinforce your conviction and make you even more intolerant, racist or anti-Semitic. So I really try to, to understand, even if we have this um, 
fact that in a way a lot of public memory policies do not work, they are more and more present. So how can you understand this contradiction? And it's on that that I've been working these past years alone or with Sandrine Lefranc, as you said, or with Sarah debris McQuaid from Aarhus University. And we published this special issue on administration of memory together with colleagues, which try to investigate this line of work through this idea of studying um, memory as a social framework, as a common language through which the contemporary societies are speaking themselves out. And for example, the, the ongoing debate on the statutes is one example of that. So, and to, to answer your question, whose memory do I study and how? I will make a very important point. I will insist on the fact that in my work, and it doesn't mean that I think everyone should be doing that, but I consider memory from a relational paradigm. I don't consider that some people have memory and I don't study memory in mind. I study memory as relationship between people, as social interaction. I really think and I'm convinced that memory doesn't exist in a way. So it's very, it's a paradox to be a memory study scholars and consider that memory doesn't exist. But it means that when I, for example, speak of collective memory, through this expression, through this concept, I think of a relational process between people. And it seems through this relation that memory is forming, evolving and um, transforming itself. And for example, I'm coming from social sciences and I've been working with biologists now and precisely because I'm I want to make the points for social sciences that memory is not only something we have in, in our mind, it's really something that exists outside of people. And that's why I speak of collective memory in the Maurice Alvac's way of framing it. It's not a content, it's more a relation. And so to do that, I use a very large uh, diversity of uh, methodologies um, and data from archives to ethnography, um, the use of quantitative data or um, participant observation, of course, interviews. So really it's what I like in my job and what I like in studying memory is the way we can use um, all these different methodologies and try to investigate memory as something always on the move. Fantastic. Thanks so much for that, Sarah. And now we're going to hear more from Dr. Gensberger as she presents a talk entitled From Ordinary Memory to Extraordinary Heritage, a study of the memorialization of the 2015 Paris attacks. In spring 2020, trying to stop the expansion of the COVID pandemic, most of European countries progressively went into lockdown. In reaction to this unprecedented situation, some historians, sociologists, anthropologists, scholars in media or literature studies, and others began collecting memories of this extraordinary time. Some of them focused on preserving what they called ordinary traces coming from everyday life and diverse social groups. As it happened, I experienced the very same kind of challenge when after the terrorist attacks of November 13, 2015 in Paris, I conducted an unprecedented research as both a sociologist of memory and an inhabitant of the neighborhood of the attacks where I had been living with my family for eight years by then. A few months ago, on the first day of lockdown in Paris, my eight years old son asked me, Mom, do you think that the lockdown will make history? And I answered him, it is clearly part of history since it is currently happening, but we cannot know today how people will remember it in the future. My son was not really satisfied. No, Mom, I mean the fact that we are now living in lockdown. Does it mean that November 13 attacks are not an historical event anymore? 
My son is still too young to fully understand that the answer to his really relevant question will depend on the way of passing from a grassroots memorialization process to a heritageization of the event. In Paris, on September 19, 2018, the French president Emmanuel Macron announced that he had decided to create a museum and memorial to victims of terrorism in Paris. In the case of the COVID pandemic, the projects of museum creations emerged while the lockdown was still going on, illustrating an acceleration of time, leaving less and less room for diverse expression of memory. In this talk, I will come back to this heritageization process of ordinary memory in the case of November 13 attacks in Paris, as a way to reflect on our contemporary situation, hoping to be useful to the memory studies community in the context of the corona crisis. How to study ordinary memory of an extraordinary time, and how do we move from a grassroots memorialization to an institutionalized heritageization? On January 7, 2015, at noon, two terrorists broke into the offices of French satirical newspaper Charlie Hebdo at 10 Rue Nicolas Appert in the 11th arrondissement of Paris. They killed 11 people. A few minutes later, as they fled the scene, they shot down a police officer two blocks away from the Bataclan concert hall. Barely 10 months later, on the night of November 13, 2015, The first attack took place in Saint-Denis at the football stadium. At the same time in Paris, three gunmen rushed towards the Bataclan. They began by shooting the people sitting outside the Bataclan cafe before going inside the concert hall itself and opening fire on the crowd. On this same night, other gunmen shot people in several cafes and restaurants in and around the 11th arrondissement, as well as in the nearby 10th arrondissement leaving a total of 130 people dead and almost 1,500 rounded. Except from the attack of the football stadium, all these events all took place in the same neighborhood, most often labeled as the Republic Plaza district. This public square is a key site in both the history and geography of Paris. Even today, this is where many popular demonstrations in the capital begin, included the one against the... Um, racism recently. At the center of the square, there is a 9.5 meter high bronze statue of Marianne, the female symbol of the French Republic, built in the 1880s. On January 7, 2015, following Charlie Hebdo killings, the square was instantly filled with people who came together to mourn the events that just happened only a few blocks away. The base of the statue was immediately transformed into a gigantic grassroots memorial. Just 10 months later, following November 13, 2015, once again, the Place de la République became the epicenter of commemorative events. But this time, a second huge grassroots memorial also started in front of the Bataclan Concert Hall. The Bataclan Concert Hall is situated at number 50 Boulevard Voltaire, halfway between the Place de la République and Charlie Hebdo offices. I live on this road with my partner and our two children, who were aged seven and four at the time of the attacks, and go to school there. I'm a sociologist of memory. I study mainly public policies of remembrance as their appropriation. After the events of January, and especially after those of November 2015, the phenomena that I was accustomed to studying in places and periods removed from my everyday life were now unfolding on my doorstep, in my own neighborhood. This personal and private experience prompted a new development in my work, including a new form of sociological and public writing. I began to write a sociological chronicle of my neighborhood, first on a daily basis and then weekly, paying attention to the urban and social spaces and linking my everyday life with my ethnographic work. Being a mother of two young children, my son and daughter, I accompanied me during a large part of the field work. At first, the presence of my children seemed to me as a burden. On the field, I had to pay attention to them and I felt I was not fully available to keep tracks of things happening. However, My children's presence turned out to be very fruitful for my research. It became a full participation in the scientific work. Their views on things were very helpful because of the way children's views tend to normalize what they witness. 
Children, especially young children, are likely to express pre-socialized and framed opinion and feelings. And reflecting this everyday scene through my daughter and son's eyes helps me connect to the everyday setting and character of the method and remove the more immediate tendency I had as a sociologist to focus on a traumatic reading of attacks and their aftermaths to pay more attention to the ordinary dimension of memory. With my kids then, but also, of course, very often alone, over the course of one year, I listened to ordinary conversation and my ethnographical observation embedded in my everyday life. I also took more than 1,000 pictures, and these pictures helped me to keep track of things and served as a data resource through which I could filter my critical ethnographic analysis. I published this text and some of the photos on real-time blog in French. And I stopped nourishing this block on September 20, 2016, when took place the first museum exhibition of tributes originally left on grassroots memorials. Indeed, this day, the theme of the 33rd edition of European Heritage Day was Heritage and Citizenship. And to mark this occasion, the Paris City Archives proposed an exhibition in their headquarters of the 19th arrondissement entitled The Case of the Tributes to the Victim of the November 13, 2015 attacks, from the street to the archives. These things, left in the streets, in the public space, which I had constantly referred to in fluctuating terms in my chronicles, were now to be considered and labeled as tributes, and started to be officially displayed. Since this last blog chronicle devoted to observations of these first exhibitions and interviews with visitors, I have been studying the progressive passing from immediate and grassroots memorialization to state-organized and official heritageization. And this became a book entitled Memory on My Doorstep and published in 2019 by Leuven University Press. In this podcast talk, I would like to focus on a small part of this book and present the passing from the immediate memorialization to the still-lasting heritageization of the 2015 Paris events. In doing so, I hope to give you an insight of the different dynamics currently at work in the construction of the memory of the 2015 terrorist attack in Paris, and more largely, how memory can be studied as a process and from a perspective which will not be exclusively trauma-driven. The issue, the issue of preserving the tributes and objects left on Place de la République appeared as soon as January 2015. At first, however, it was framed ne neither by the French state nor the city of Paris. In France, there is no real tradition of public history and grassroots archives. And after the Charlie Hebdo attack, then no public services took any initiative to preserve this expression of spontaneous reactions to the event. Quite significantly, it was a US university, Harvard in this matter, who took the only organized and institutionalized initiative in this matter through the project called the Charlie Archives. However, in Paris, on site, a group of citizens decided on their own to foster and preserve the so-called tributes and objects. This group of approximately 20 people called themselves 17 Never Again, in reference to the 17 people killed in the Charlie Hebdo attack sequence. They self-appointed themselves guardians and keepers of the new grassroots memorials. Each day and several times a day, they will come on Place de la République and clean the place, sorting things to throwing away, damaged or dissensual ones, either racist or anti-governmental. In addition to cleaning and sorting, they will stage things also. And in several occasions, this private curating of the tributes and use of the place generated conflict over the appropriation of public space. After November killings took place, this first regime of both memorialization and heritageization changed. In Paris, where no real destruction occurred, it was the importance of the grassroots memorial taking over the public space in the neighborhood, taking over roads and pedestrian walks, as much as we couldn't walk anymore to go to school, which this time forced the public authorities to get involved in the memorialization. In order to enable cars to drive and people to walk again on the footpath, 
on Boulevard Voltaire, the city decided to implement a collect operation without, at this stage, considering any heritage policy in the long run. They first put together an unprecedented cooperation between cleaning city service, city archives, and city museum. They're collecting things on site in three steps, starting on December 20, 2015. Of course, this collecting process was not exhaustive. First, the weather, from rain to snow, destroyed some of the tributes. But also the fetishization and the stealing that goes with it sometimes led very important documents to avoid preservation. For example, on May 24, 2016, in front of the Bataclan, I observed the visit of a delegation from the East and West Civilizations in Dialogue event, held that morning at the City Hall. Among them were Hamed El-Tayab, the Grand Imam of Al-Azhar, and Andrea Riccardi, the founder of the Catholic community of Sant'Egidio. Together they laid a wreath alongside the one led by the Meyer. Its colors stood out next to the more traditional colors of the Republic, and instead of the tricolor sash, there was a small piece of white paper. On this paper was a handwritten message from the Grand Imam Hamed al-Tayeb, which called for peace and dialogue. However, this tiny piece of paper, so loaded with symbolism, will never make it to the Paris Archives collections. By 6 p.m., only three hours after the scene, on my way back from picking my daughter up, this small piece of paper was nowhere to be seen. I searched in vain, but clearly someone had taken it. And maybe more importantly in terms of selection, the process put in place for the Bataclan and the terraces of the café has never been extended to the Place de la République. From November 13 onwards, the city of Paris has been afraid of creating conflict with the 17 Never Again group of keepers. And as it happens, the content of the messages left Place de la République showed a very different pictures, far more political than the one left at the Bataclan or the Terrace. This is explained because of the symbolic of the plaza, of course, but also because of the conjunctions of events that took place in it since January 2015 onwards. Indeed, overlapping with my field study of memorialization was the progression of the Occupy movement in Paris which by a lot of ways recalls the one occupied Wall Street after September 11 in New York. From March 31, 2016, the Place de la République was no longer exclusively a place for grassroots memorialization. It also became the hub of a social movement of occupation against the reform of labor laws in France. A movement that called itself Nuit Debout, the Night Rises, and Nuit Debout marked a new stage in the dispute over public space, and it also revealed more broadly the fragmentation of the memory of the Paris attack. Beyond the social mobilization, Nuit Debout appeared also as a form of memorialization. Nuit Debout and the attacks share not only space, but also time. The killing of November 2015 were nocturnal. It was at night that Paris was confronted with horror, and it is at night that they now mobilize. For a regular observer, Nuit Debout stems in part from a desire to come together at night on the Place de la République, in this place and this time that were those of the attacks. Being debout, literally standing up, was ultimately a refusal to, to take it lying down, a refusal to be dead, as so many were on November 13. But Nuit Debout also carries its own form of memorialization, a far more political one. I managed to document to what extent lots of other past events were evoked in the Place de la République, in articulation with the immediate memorialization of the 2015 attacks. This includes references to other terrorist attacks around the world, from Brussels to Orlando, but also to the First and Second World Wars, including the collaboration by the French state or the figure of Anne Frank, but also the October 17, 1961 massacre in Paris, when French police threw Algerian people protesting the Algerian war into the Seine River. On Place de la République, the memorialization of the attacks was also, and to a large extent, conflictual and political, rather than exclusively consensual, as it could appear on the Bataclan. 
Today's tensions and political controversies and dissensus, which were at the core of the immediate memorialization of the event, have been largely, largely left out of the heritage collection. The Paris archives have not collected tributes on Place de la République. It is, however, Place de la République that the state and the city of Paris have gently chosen to install their first permanent memorial as a way to try to take back control of the memorialization dynamic. For the first anniversary of the January 2015 attacks, the Paris City Council and the French Presidency initially considered planting 17 trees on the Place de la République, one for each victim. This tree planting was a reference to an established sign of resilience. The organization of the tree planting was in its advanced stages when the November 13 shootings occurred. Once again, the same neighborhood was in the heart of the attack. It was quite simply impossible to consider planting a forest of 147 trees in such a small place in the middle of Paris. So it was eventually decided that a single symbolic tree would be planted on the edges of the place on the side of the 10th district. At the base of this so-called memory oak was a plaque bearing the following inscription. In memory of the victims of the terrorist attacks in January and November 2015 in Paris, Montrouge and Saint-Denis, the French people pay homage to them here. This official commemorative monument was erected even as people's spontaneous public expression of memory, particularly through the grassroots memorial, was at its height. Only a few dozen meters away from the tree, in the center of the Place de la République. Like an allegory, the tree got sick and had to be replaced. Since then, it is looked after very carefully. In any event, the tree has never been genuinely appropriated as a site of memory. Regular observation has shown that it is not visited and most of those who use the place, both tourists and Parisians, do not even know it exists. Nor has the tree given rise to any political appropriation. During the commemoration of the second and third anniversary of November 13, no official state representative even left a wrist there or made any official gestures of commemoration. Since its inauguration in January 2016, the tree has indeed had competition. The memory of Paris 2015 attacks is still looking for a place. First, since the September 16 Paris Archives exhibition I referred to in my introduction, as the reason why I stopped writing my blog, the legacy of this grassroots memorial has continued despite the fact that they were initially destined to be ephemeral. On the course of 2017 and 18, several collections of documents were added to the Paris archives. By now, you are fully aware that these collections are by no means spontaneous nor exhaustive. Being damaged and stealing, the work of collecting these tributes was itself subject to specific protocols. It resulted in the destruction of several elements, including many flags considered redundant because repetitive, and the archival collections now cover, in decreasing order of quantity, the tributes left around the Bataclan, those from the cafe, and finally, but to a very, very lesser extent, the memorial from the Place de la République, completed by the letters from the Charlie Hebdo paper. In contrast, the construction of this heritage does not concern the immediate memorialization of the killing of a policewoman in Montrouge on January 8, 2015, or the shooting in the hypercashier supermarket in the east of Paris on the edge of the town of Saint-Mandé and Vincennes, where on January 9, 2015, a gunman held shoppers hostage, leaving four people dead and two wounded among the practicing Jews who were the store's primary clientele. It also does not concern the terrorist attack of November 13, 2015, around the Stade de France in Saint-Denis, which left one person dead and several seriously injured. In this respect, the ongoing construction of heritage produces as much forgetting and silence as it does memory. The events on the social and geographical margins also led to marginalization in terms of heritage and memory. 
The 10th and 11th districts of Paris are the very heart of the city. Saint-Denis, Montrouge, Saint-Mandé and Vincennes are all on its very edges. Similarly, each of these three events was conceptualized by the authority as targeting so-called, I, I quote, specific groups in the universalist perspective of the French state. Jews, the police, and in the case of Saint-Denis, a geographic area frequently associated with high immigration and minority ethno-religious group. The immediate reaction to the attack on the one hand and the commemoration of the events and the heritage of this past on the other are necessarily a continuum. These are stages in the ongoing process of memorialization. In Spain, the messages left in response to the terrorist attack in Madrid on March 11, 2004 also constitute primary sources for the national commemorative monument. Some of them were engraved into the immense glass monument set up on the site of the Atocha train station, which was the epicenter of the attacks. In Brussels, too, the town authorities are considering using these tributes now preserved in the town archives to build a future monument, possibly engraving them into the ground on the Place de la Bourse, where most of the gatherings after the attacks of March 22, 2016 were held. In the French case, the memorial destiny of these tributes to the victim of the 2015 attacks has yet to be decided. For the moment, they have been digitalized. A website was set up by the Paris Archives in November 16, allowing people to read them online. And by the end of June 2018, the Paris Archives website for consulting the tributes to the victims of the attack had been visited more than 100,000 times. This interest from users peaked during the annual commemoration. For the moment, the construction of the heritage of the events goes hand in hand with their commemoration. And this cyclical temporal framing is associated with a memorial topography. A little bit more than three years after the events, several sites in the Parisian public space bear witness to their memory. These sites were all inaugurating during annual commemoration of the events. In November 16, for the first anniversary of the events, the Paris City Council and the French government made the decision to have the memorial topography reflect the cartography of the attack. A commemorative plaque was inaugurated in each of the sites affected, café, concert hall and football stadium. And as usual in Paris, the text on the plaque systematically lists the dates and the full names of the victims. However, breaking with habits, they are not fixed to the walls of the buildings in which the killing took place. So as not to interfere with the return to business as usual, they are all several meters away, set on public buildings or on street fixtures. Only the facade of the Bataclan Concert Hall has a small plaque, but it only refers the viewers to the public square across the road where this is the main official where there is the main official commemorative plaque listing the names of the dead. In fact, these sites are torn between mourning the 130 people all kin in a single night and returning to normal economic activity, particularly for the cafe and concert hall. It is therefore difficult for commemoration to find its rightful place. There is this constant tension between a search for visibility and a desire for invisibility, which explains the progressive evolution of these memorials. Following demons from survivors and from families who did not want anything to cover or hide the names of their dead. The sites of memory serve to designate a shared space of commemoration, even if they are slightly removed from the sites of the attack. Each participant is liable to award it a different meaning, but everyone agrees that the annual ceremony to honor the victim should be held there. Each November 13, the survivors and victim families, individually or as part of victim associations, return to these sites one after the other. These ceremonies are also attended by the mayor of Paris, Anne Hidalgo, and the state representative, the French president or the prime minister, François Hollande in 2016, Emmanuel Macron in 2017, and Édouard Philippe in 2018. 
They each lay an official wreath in turn, but none speaks. There is no political reading of the event. The ceremonies are completely silent. There is only the reading of the names of the dead, a now global necronormalist ritual to break the silence. This litany, adjoining feminine and masculine voices, was pre-recorded for the first anniversary and has been replayed every year since. The polycentrists of the site and the polysemy of their memorialization are also accompanied by a polymorphic community mobilization. Almost immediately after the night of November 13, two organizations to support victims emerge. They each bring together survivors and family and loved ones of people who were killed. Yet they have significantly different sociological profiles. The members of Life for Paris are mostly young, either survivors or loved one of survivors of the Bataclan. The other organization, 13-11-15, Fraternité and Vérité, has older members who are for the most part mothers and fathers of people who died in cafe or in the Bataclan. For the two first anniversary of November 13 in 2016 and 2017, each of these organizations held their own separate ceremony immediately following the official parade. However, 2018 marks the beginning of a new era of commemoration, a phase of institutionalization that was based on the collaboration between the different levels of French government. This new period is organized around the question of the issue of the erection of a new commemorative monument. In 2018, both the French state and the city of Paris had created commissions and working groups to enable the erection of both a national and a municipal monument. This solicitation by these two government bodies had led the two victims' association to eventually stand together. For the third anniversary on November 13, 2018, they organized a single shared ceremony that was held on the steps of the city hall of the 11th district, where each of the presidents of the organization spoke. These two speeches were also the opportunity for each of these victim organizations to celebrate the state intention to inaugurate in Paris a national museum and memorial for victims of terrorism. Similarly, the City of Paris' proposal to construct a monument in the urban space contributed to this organization coming together and helped them move away from the time of mourning and into the time of official commemoration and heritage. As was the case for 9-11, the representatives of victims have found themselves in a key role in this new phase of institutionalization of memory, whether it takes the form of a monument or a museum. Once again, however, this institutionalization has not been purely consensual. The discussions around the Paris Monuments project shed light on the diversity of victims' experience. Families who have lost loved ones naturally turn towards the idea of setting up a grand funerary monument in the garden of the Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris, a cemetery which is home to many other sites honoring the memory of historic crimes, including those of terrorist attacks against French people since 1980. Their focus is on remembering the dead, but the survivors, who were there on the night of November 13, want a monument that celebrates their survival and the collective solidarity that, in their eyes, has allowed them to keep going. They consider the neighborhood of the attack and the urban space as the only site where such a monument could be created. So there are already several sites of memories that bear witness to the 2015 terrorist attack in Paris. But this plurality can also be seen in the calendar of the events. Along with the plaques, National Days of Remembrance are the other traditional tool for public commemoration in France. In the American case, the 2001 attacks all happened on one day. It was therefore immediately clear that the single date of September 11 would be chosen as the date for Patriot Day. The question of an official date for the commemoration of the 2015 Paris attack is far more complicated. The events took place within a history of terrorism that in the French context began well before 2015 and unfortunately has continued after. 
Given the significant divergence between victim association, the government finally opted for the European level as so rising above the fray and chose March 11 as the date in reference to the European Day for the Commemoration of Victims of Terrorism decided by the European Parliament following the Madrid attacks in 2004. Here, the construction of collective memory would involve the adoption of a reference above and beyond the nation, despite the fact that the latter was a primary frame for the events being commemorated. Reference to overseas example and the influence of transnational dynamic in commemoration have indeed been characteristic of the memorialization of the 2015 Paris attack from the very beginning. To implement and organize the collection of data, the Paris Archive consists, constantly relied on precedents from overseas, from the New York case to the Our Marathon project run by Northeastern University following the Boston attack in April 2013, as well as the Charlie Archive initiative at Harvard University that followed the January 2015 attacks in Paris. Since then, the Parisian example has in turn encouraged other initiatives, like those of the Brussels archives in March 2015. Similarly, the decision to plant a memory tree on the Place de la République in January 2016 was explicitly linked by political leaders at both the national and local level to the president in Madrid, where two months after the attacks, 192 cypress and olive trees were planted across from the Atocha station. Finally, the Museum Memorial Project, promoted by the French state since September 2018, made continual reference to the president of the 9-11 National Memorial and Museum. Also, almost all the actors of memorialization around the event of November 13, 2015, have continually turned towards the New York precedents. The Parisian case is very different in several respects. Firstly, where 9-11 led to a massive destruction of buildings and the urban environment, the 2015 Paris attack had almost no visible consequences in the public space. As a result, the potential projects for monuments, museums and memorials are more or less indispensable and more open in the French case. The temporality of the event is also profoundly different. September 11, 2001 has in many ways remained an isolated event in American history, at least in a short-term perspective. November 13, 2015 came after the events of January 7 and 9 of the same year and was followed by several other terrorist attacks, including less than one year after the devastating attack in Nice that left 86 people dead, including 13 children. Moreover, from a long-term perspective, the city of Paris and its inhabitants have confronted many traumatic events from the waves of terrorism in the 1980s and 1990s to the Second World War and the German occupation, or now to this COVID lockdown. That is likely to build a specific attitude toward adversity among residents. In this respect, fluctuating as it does between memory and forgetting, between immediacy and the long term, the memorialization of the 2015 terrorist attack in Paris is still ongoing and a very interesting subject to investigate for memory studies scholars. Thanks so much for that talk, Saga. There's certainly a lot for us to think about in there. I think the first thing that I would like to ask you about is um, spontaneous and institutionalized processes of commemoration. I got the impression from your talk that there was a spectre looming over it. And that was the risk that institutionalized commemoration somehow undermines the interest and engagement of individuals or at least displaces that interest and engagement uh, and perhaps adds a political element to it, which detracts from it. Uh, and I was wondering if you might talk about that side of things, the interaction between the institutionalized and the spontaneous. Yeah, the, the best way to do that will be to look a little bit more um, into the issue of National Day of Commemoration. Um, so it's very, very interesting to see that a lot of 
national days could have been picked for commemorating the victim of terrorism in France. And each of these days, in a way, has um, its local grounds. So, you, of course, you can have uh, January 2015, November 13, 2015, but also a lot more, because as I said in the talk, uh, terrorism in France is nothing but new. And because the French way of seeking national and institutions is, is not by interacting with local levels, but is by putting itself over the local ones. The decision was, was made to pick the European national, not so, not the national day of commemoration, but the European day of commemoration of victim of terrorism, which is March 11, and has nothing to do with France because it was picked as such from the Spain case, the Madrid uh, attack of 2004. And here it's really interesting because the state picked this day, but at the same time they said, but locally, anyone can uh, go on celebrating each of their day, like uh, Paris is going to commemorate November 13, and um, the, for example, Nice will commemorate 14th of July, etc. So right now we have the same kind of discourse with the statue. Uh, the President Macron said that the people were advocating um, the removal of this statue were separating themselves from the nations. But in a way, it's the nation itself in this case which creates this kind of separation because in order not to create conflict and not to decide, because it's also the role of the government to decide something and to tell something about the past, uh, it was an easiest way for them to pick the European day. So it has two, um, two feedbacks, negative feedbacks. The first one is to link once more Europe with something which has no meanings for French. So it's not really what we would like. And two, it's to create one more a layer of commemoration because it doesn't mean anything locally. So it means that we will have the Europeans and national and the local one. So the state itself is creating the, the, this inflation and multiplication of commemorations that it, it doesn't stop to denounce on the other way, saying that it's a reflection of the atomization and individualization of society, this separatism, this, in French, they say communautarism which has not the positive uh, connotation as it has in the English-speaking world, but it's the production of the state itself, you know? In so this is really something that is, uh, I am aware it may be surprising for some of the um, audience because it's very, it's the opposite way of the way a lot of people analyze the current situation. But in a way, in France, the state is the first actor of this atomization is constantly denouncing in terms of memory wars, as they say. I was wondering if you might elaborate on the tension um, between silence and polyphony that you mentioned in connection with uh, the recording uh, that was integrated into one of the commemorative ceremonies. What interested me there was these figures of silence as a form of memory, as a form of respectful um, commemoration but then also the relevance of the figure of polyphony and multiple voices in the act of commemoration. So I was wondering if you might just elaborate on um, that recording specifically and perhaps these ideas about um, silence and many-voicedness uh, in the context of remembering past events. Yeah, thank you to give me the opportunity to elaborate a little bit more about this specific ethnography of the commemoration itself and who speaks with uh, whose voices, which is really something I didn't have the time to uh, elaborate in the talk. So first, the fact that uh, the names of the victims are recorded, it's um, because you have two victims organizations and it was in a way a difficult issue to pick who was going to say publicly the names of the victims. 
So using recording with actors, I think, I'm not sure, but they are from the Comédie Française, which is kind of the most prestigious uh, public theater in France, was a way to uh, kind of pacify this uh, more problematic issue. The second thing is the very important fact of no politicians uh, speaking during this commemoration. So I didn't go into that in the talk, but when you are doing ethnography in this uh, audience of this commemoration, it's very strange because, so you have, for example, um, Emmanuel Macron who is here and he doesn't speak. And so in a way, all, all the people who are there think it's good he doesn't speak because it is show, showing respect for the dead and not doing any political use of the event. But on the other way, they say, but why is he here if he doesn't speak? He's the president of the, the nation. He needs to say something to give a, a public interpretation of the event. And this tension between public speeches and silence is something very interesting because each time it was the occasion for member of the audience to uh, to really say publicly what this, this they were thinking themselves of the event first, but also of the politicians who were there. And so it gave the opportunity to be more into a conflictual conversation than what you see from the outside, which was really a consensual and moving commemoration. Everyone was mourning, which is true. But inside this consensus, you had a lot of dissensus, which was expressing itself through this reference to the politicians being there, but being silent. Your project of observing everyday activities taking place in the streets of Paris and your concern with memory reminds me of some of the uh, works by French author Georges Perec, who, if I recall correctly, actually worked for the CNRS very early in his career. Do you see a connection between your work not only with the sociology of Maurice Alvax, but also with that uh, later movement between sociology or, or ethnography of Georges Perec and others in the 1970s and later on? Thank you, Paul, for this um, suggestion, because it's really something important to me, not only about this work on the Bataclan neighborhood, but also about my other cap, which is uh, more of a social historian of World War II Paris. And indeed, I've been looking, in fact, as all these neighborhoods of Paris, through the terrorist attack or through the Holocaust period in Paris, exactly in a way as Georges Perec did, um, trying to look at the ordinary, everyday things on this kind of extraordinary places. And, um, and really, I, I, I've been reading and discovering his work from the very beginning of my work. So it's more of a companion to me. And it's kind of flattering for me that you, um, that my work reminded you in, even if in small parts about his. It's also something I'm very much um, interested in uh, from a methodological perspective. Because in his work, in the way he, he worked on the space of Paris, he has all this methodological reflection and writing reflections. And I've been, these past years, also been thinking about how to write research, how to write sociology of memory, how to write social history of World War II Paris. And this project about the um, Bataclan neighborhood was also a way for me to, to think more through this issue of writing research. For me to like it first, of course, as a kind of egoist uh, woman I am, but also for others to enjoy reading it. And in this way, I'm very sensitive to this um, reference to Georges Perec. And actually, I've been also, for example, creating podcasts, historical podcasts of World War II Paris as a way to uh, invent a new form of narration, not only of the past, but narration of research in the process of being made. I'm afraid that's all we have time for in this episode of the Connecting Memories podcast. A huge thank you to today's guest speaker, Dr. Sarah Gensberger. It's been fantastic to have you on the show, Sarah. 
Thanks so much for sharing your ideas with us and for talking with me about memory. Thank you. It was a pleasure for me too. For more information about Connecting Memories and for news of all future episodes, please visit connectingmemories.org. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and I hope you'll join us again for the next episode of the Connecting Memories podcast series. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.